I was listening to them practice that song this morning, and I had a moment um, standing in the back, and I'll share. Um, my moment was remembering again that when Jesus talks about us coming to him like children, so much of what that is is the awareness that kids just, they'll just have a go. They kind of have to, because everything is a new start. Everything is something that they're learning. And I remember um, driving across the plains of West Texas with my granddad. And uh, yeah, yeah. Midland to Lubbock. I mean, there you go, right? Permian Basin. And my granddad had a, a late 1970s pickup truck, two-tone Ford, no seatbelts. I mean, if there were seatbelts, we weren't wearing them. And it was we, me and my brother and my granddad. And uh, I was, I, don't know, I, I was seven, maybe. My brother was five. My brother was sitting on my granddad's lap driving West Texas. And you could see for miles, and it was beautiful, and I'm looking around, and finally I, I, I look over at my granddad. Now, mind you, we were on a kind of sabbatical furlough from the UK where we were missionaries. I had this thick British accent. And I looked over, and my granddad told me this story so many times that I'll be honest, I don't know if this is a memory or if this is something that my granddad just told me, <laughs> but I was that little. And I looked over at my granddad, and I said, Granddad, I like that John's driving. We don't get to do that in England. Granddad, I think I'll have a go. He was like, oh, yeah, it's, I guess, yeah, sure. <laughs> so, so I did. We pulled over at the next gas station, and we traded spots, and I climbed up in Granddad's lap, and I got to drive. What I do remember, and this is, this is my memory, because I don't remember him ever telling me this. What I do remember is getting really distracted by all the cows. And he said, now, honey, you're driving. You, you need to pay attention. <laughs> Kids will have a go. Kids will just have a go. Whether they can figure it out, whether they know what comes next, or not. They'll just, I'll have a go. And I think there's something about that that just delights the heart of God. And so as we receive that song, I was reminded again of what it is to just be willing to have a go. This is Palm Sunday, and I'm going to tell another story real quick. This is Palm Sunday, and this is kind of dear to my heart, and I'll share why. When I was very, very little, I grew up in church. My parents were missionaries. My dad pastored a church in England, and <clears throat> kids would sit in church just like this. And we were welcome, and uh, sometimes we sang, and sometimes we raised our hands, and sometimes we climbed underneath the pews, and we played with our Legos and our Barbie dolls underneath the pews, and we were shushed a lot, but we knew that we were welcome. And I remember being three and a half, and I have, this is an actual memory. 
and it was a Sunday, and we'd come home from church at night, because we did church in the morning and church at night. We came home from church at night. My dad was putting me to bed. And I don't know if it was Palm Sunday or not, but he was, my dad's a good storyteller, and he was telling me the story of the children on Palm Sunday. And this is how he told it. Do you know what happened, Jerusha? Do you know what happened when Jesus came into the city? The Bible says that those who went before him and those who followed, do you know what they did? They shouted. They shouted, Hosanna, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And do you know who it was that shouted the loudest and shouted the most? It was the kids. And I jumped up and down, and I said, Daddy, Daddy, tell it again. I kid you not, I had him tell that story about four, five different times, just exactly the same way. Those that went before him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. What I still remember is the sense of anticipation. As an adult, that anticipation gets filled with all kinds of other expectations. But when I think about those kids who were just there to celebrate who grabbed their palm fronds and said, oh, I'll have a go. Jesus knew. Jesus knew that the kids knew. So I think it's one of those moments when we can be a little bit more like the kids again. Welcome to New Community. If you are new with us, so glad that you're here. You sit among a group of beautiful people, people who are committed to this idea that it's better to go through life together that uh, the way we engage with our faith, if it is active and growing, that it produces in us something significant, which is us becoming more like who Jesus invited us to be. People who are creating and inviting shalom to take place, people who are invested in their city and loving people well, and um, that is who we aspire to be. And uh, today we aspire to be that on Palm Sunday. It's one of these most significant kind of moments in the life of the church. It is uh, the start of Holy Week. It is the time that uh, most of what we think of when we think of the life of Jesus took place during this week. He arrives in Jerusalem. He's teaching his disciples. He's um, just debating with religious leaders. He's overturning tables, he's praying an agonizing prayer at the Garden of Gethsemane, he's having the very last supper, he endures horrible trials where he's uh, completely innocent and yet proven guilty, he endures brutal mistreatment, and he has the agonizing death on the cross, and then we get ready and prepare for Easter Sunday. And so this week, is a profound season in the life of the church. And every year, when it comes to Palm Sunday, there is this uh, special attention given to the life of Jesus entering Jerusalem, riding on a donkey, 
having palm branches waved, and it is celebrated worldwide. It's something that's talked about often by the church, and so hosannas are shouted. Preachers everywhere at the exact same time absolutely dread Palm Sunday. I don't know why that's the case, but the um, general consensus on most church staffs that I've either talked to or been a part of is like nobody wants Palm Sunday. Yeah, and they don't want it because I would imagine it's one of two reasons. I don't totally get it, but one of the reasons is that it, I, do, I do get this part. It's Palm Sunday, and so every year you're like, hey, we're going to talk about palms again, right? Or we're going to talk about this Sunday, and everyone's kind of like, yeah, but, you know, Thursday's coming, and Friday, and there's some st- stuff happening on Good Friday, and then we got Saturday, and then Easter, right? So I think that's one of the reasons. The second is, as a, as a speaker, you feel like you got the Sunday, you got assigned the Sunday before the Super Bowl of Sundays, which is Easter, right? So it's like, okay, we'll just give this to you. So I, I don't know why exactly Palm Sunday is frowned upon, but I will say this. I'm excited about the text this morning, excited about where we're going to go, and surprisingly, this probably is not a surprise, to most of you, we're going to take a slightly different angle, hopefully, this morning as we talk about the things I wished were acknowledged on Palm Sunday. These are the things I wished were acknowledged on Palm Sunday. Okay, first is this. Palm Sunday is the Black Friday of the palm branch industry. I mean, if you think about it, it without this Sunday, I don't even know if we have palm fronds, right? Florists would close. Uh, so today, if you're folding the cross, thanks for doing your part. Thanks for keeping the industry alive one more year. Okay, here's another thing that I think is true. Nobody talks about this, but Palm Sunday is, I think, the equivalent of a Starbucks run for the disciples. This is a send the intern to get the donuts and the coffee for the office staff kind of assignment. I mean, think about it. It's the equivalent of, like, getting an Uber for Jesus, right? You're just assigned a task, and if you look at the Gospels, you'd be hard-pressed, because I don't think it's in there, that they don't even mention who got the assignment, because they know it's like, oh, we're just grabbing some coffee for Jesus, right? It's like this weird moment that the church doesn't talk about it much, but you have this uh, really interesting, somebody had to go do it, and it gets assigned to one of the disciples. But I think Palm Sunday, in a more serious note, is a day of defiance. We tend not to talk about this. We talk about Palm Sunday as a Hallmark Sunday. This beautiful story of palm branches and hosannas and cheering and celebration and a triumphal entry. And everything's about how awesome and beautiful and amazing Palm Sunday is. But I think that's because it's completely misunderstood. Palm Sunday is rather an aggressive and highly political statement. See, the last time that the Jews had been free from oppression, the last time they hadn't been under the rule and authority of someone much more powerful than them, the Jewish people had a rebellion. And in that rebellion, they had victory. And in victory, 
they got palm branches and waved them and went throughout the city and then they started to mint coins that would be the primary coins that would be passed around and used in the marketplace and every one of those coins had palm branches on it signifying that we were victorious, we overthrew um, through this rebellion and we're no longer under, under the oppression of others. And so... You have this moment where laying palm branches in the story of Palm Sunday was actually an act of defiance. It was a big statement against the powers that be. And what's funny is that we have unfortunately, in many ways, sanitized the scriptures. We like proudly defend them, we talk about the significance of them, but then we leave out the more raw and kind of authentic elements of the scriptures. This is a crazy political charged Sunday. We don't want it to be, but it is. It is the waving palm branches would have been the equivalent of teaching your child to stick up their middle finger in protest to the Roman authority. And by the looks of some kids on their face, what? Exactly. That is what we should be feeling. We should be feeling this like, wait a second. What? I thought it was about niceties and celebrations. But Palm Sunday is one of the most political Sundays of the year. And by that, I do not mean political in the way we think about it in 2023. I'm not thinking about it in terms of voting or democracy in the left and the right, right? This is about a screaming out of the people. A screaming out of the people against the oppressive nature and the injustice in which people were experiencing. That's what it was. And it was a stark contrast to the powers around. And so there's deep significance in Palm Sunday, but not often the way we talk about it. I'll give you another one. What I wish was acknowledged on Palm Sunday is that Palm Sunday is also about the donkey. We always make it about the palms and less so about the donkey. But I think there's something very significant. And the writers keep cluing us in to the significance of the donkey. Now, many of you are familiar that in Zechariah, a long time ago, there was a prophecy. The prophecy is in chapter 9. It's read this way. See, your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey. Then he says, I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem, and the battle bow will be broken, and he will proclaim peace to the nations. Again, it's this contrast of peace and power. And so you have this moment in which a prophecy is made, and then the gospel writers are saying, hey, let me clue you into this. This is a significant piece of the prophecy puzzle. But the way they do it is fascinating. So John tends to not give much time. He mentions the donkey, but doesn't give it much time. So if you look up on the screen here, you have a lot of text, but then here's what John says about the donkey. And Jesus found a young donkey and he sat on it just as it is written. Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Quick and simple, John communicates the importance of the donkey. But if we go to Mark, you'll see a difference. Britt read this earlier. 
you see the difference in the amount of context. Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it, and if anyone says to you, why are you doing this, say, the Lord has need of it, and we'll send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at the door outside in the street, and they untied it. And, those, and some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? Okay, and then the text goes on to, oh, and then they, um, and they told him what Jesus had said, and they let them go, and they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. So you see the significant amount of text that Mark gives to the colt. It is um, almost like he's super fixated on the donkey, so much so that he starts describing it in detail. It's going to be sitting in this one place. This is why I think Mark got sent on the coffee run. Because he's like, it's going to be sitting in this one place right outside of the door, at, off on the left, like he's describing it. And then when you get there, and this is funny, he talks about be, it untying like five times. You're going to untie it. Then someone's going to ask you why you untied it. Then you're going to say, because Jesus wants me to untie it. Then you're going to untie it. Then you're going to bring it here. And then they're going to go, why'd you untie it? And you're like, Mark, what is going on? And he just keeps going on about this. So you have John who barely mentions it. You have Mark who describes it like crazy. And then you have Matthew who goes a completely different direction. And he switches it to the plural. And you're going, what does that mean? Here's what it means. If you read it in Matthew, you'll notice that it says this. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. So Matthew's version, John's version is like, hey, there's a donkey, and he got on the donkey. Mark's version, a donkey, we untied it and untied it and untied it, and then we got on the donkey. Matthew is like a circus act. Jesus is straddling two at one time, and that you got these cloaks hanging off, and Jesus, I don't know if you've ever like gone to one of those like circuses where they're just like standing on two horses at the same time and just like, that's what I'm picturing, and it's weird that Matthew would describe it that way. So Matthew's version is just unique, different. Now, this is where some would go, ah, something's going on here because these don't line up. It's either one donkey or it's two donkeys. What's going on in the text? Now, here's the theory. The theory is that, you read it before, Zechariah prophesies that he will be on a donkey on a colt, okay? Now, any Hebrew scholar and any of us would likely say that what Zechariah was simply doing was he was poetically describing the colt. He was using parallelism to say a description of it and then to describe it a second time, Okay? often happens in Old Testament literature. What's interesting is that Matthew would have been reading the Greek translation of Zechariah in the Septuagint, and many scholars suggest that what he actually did is he misread the prophet as speaking literally. So that was a problem way back then even, where, where he thought this is exactly what Zechariah was trying to communicate, and so then when he wrote his text, he wrote it as if he's writing on them or two. Now, 
What many scholars also believe is that there's another way to understand what's happening in Matthew that I find to be incredibly compelling. And this is what they would suggest. It was most likely a donkey with a colt beside her. Read this way, Jesus rides them in the sense of having them both as a part of his demonstrations, highly visible symbolism. In other words, Jesus does not ride a stallion or a mare, a mule or a male donkey, and not even a female donkey. He rides the most unmilitary mount imaginable, a female nursing donkey with her little colt trotting along beside her. Now the imagery to me is amazing in that. Because what it's signifying is what I think is so important, and it's another thing I wish was described on Palm Sunday, and that is that Palm Sunday is a contrast between a world of power and a kingdom of powerlessness. It's contrasting a world of power, the empire, Rome, and then it's contrasting the kingdom of God. Now, At the time of Jesus' life, and specifically at this time near his death, there was a regionally held power from Rome that was granted to different people. And as we talked about the other week, this was granted to Pontius Pilate. So Pontius Pilate was the man of significance in the region. He was the one that ruled for Rome over the group of people. And every year... The Jewish people would come and have festivals in Jerusalem. There would be like big celebrations. Uh, Some would speculate that about 300,000 additional people would come into the city. And so the city would swell with energy, excitement, anticipation. But also, because we just acknowledged this a minute ago, it also swelled with this religious fervor, this um, like push against oppression, this cry out for injustice. And so all of that was really thick and heavy in the city. And so every year at Passover, Pilate would gather a group of people and have this procession of soldiers, this military parade, this um, like just massive show of force. And so he would enter the city, and many people described it where um, he would enter from the west gate, most prominent gate in the city would come in and uh, there would be like a war eagle on a standard in front of the group and then from there there would be uh, the standard bearers with flags all communicating about the power and the significance of Rome. Following them would have been centurions and legionnaires and cavalrymen followed by men walking with metal like shields and swords and displaying strength and power. Then you would have soldiers on mounted horses. Then you would have the horses carrying these significantly large chariots with people of even greater prominence on the chariot. Then following all of that, you would have Pilate dressed in all of his garb to declare royalty and pomp and circumstance, and he would ride in on the most powerful stallion behind this huge parade. 
And everyone in the city would be bowing down and cheering and yelling, Hail to Caesar, Hail to Pilate, Hail to Rome. And so you have all of this happening in the city. Again, many scholars suspect that at the exact same moment that Pilate is coming in on the west side, you have Jesus coming in from the east side. And Jesus comes in. And what is known as the triumphal entry, the text reads it this way, most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. And what the people are wanting is liberation. What the people want and what they've been longing for is the Messiah who would free them from the oppression of the Roman rulers. They want the exact opposite of what is happening on the other side of the city where there's great energy with this leader coming through. What they want is a king who's prepared for battle. They want someone who would march in from the east but would march in with the same amount of pomp and circumstance, with the same amount of energy, with the same amount of might, and meet in the middle and say, let's go to war. Let's figure this out. Let's end this oppression. That's what they're longing for. And so they take these rebellious symbols, these palm branches, and they throw them, and they they wave them, and they cheer, and they scream, Hosanna, meaning save, please. And they're just longing for Redemption and change. Michael Lidvell makes this interesting statement. He says, the Palm Sunday reality was a living parody on that dream. There was no stallion for this Messiah, just a donkey on loan. There was no army for this Messiah, just a ragtag assortment of unemployed fishermen, an errant tax collector, and some vaguely disreputable women. And this Messiah was no vanquisher of Romans. He was just a Galilean rabbi. So Pilate comes from the west proclaiming power, and Jesus comes from the east proclaiming peace. And so you have this contrast. Pride and humility, power and meekness, war and peace, empire and kingdom. And see, everything Jesus is doing in that moment is speaking about power in a completely different way. See, Jesus is still in that moment claiming power. Let's not miss that. He's still in that moment claiming kingship, lordship, authority. But his crown will be a crown of thorns. His throne will be a Roman cross. His coronation will be a sacrifice. And the victory will come through the suffering. It's the exact opposite. And so this morning, what I want to do is just wrap up by giving us a few takeaways. Just one or two that might cause us to think about Palm Sunday in a slightly different way. And the first being this, to ask ourselves an important question, what or who has your allegiance? Is it the kingdom or is it the empire? Because there is a stark contrast. We live in an empire. We operate in an empire. But we should live by the kingdom principles 
of Jesus. And so this moment that we're experiencing in the text is a moment that is equally as relevant today as it was back then. We sit under a significant power, but we live by principles and we serve a king and a kingdom that is separate from the power that is at hand, right? So let me describe the difference between these two. The empire, there's a few things that I would use to describe what empire looks like. The empire elevates the rich and ignores the poor. The empire teaches us to seek wealth above all other things or consume. The empire teaches us to prioritize our comfort over the needs of others, to seek to be selfish and self-serving rather than to choose what's best for someone else, individualism. The empire teaches us to be ruthless and violent to get what we want, to not let someone stand in the way, to be overcomers. And the empire teaches us to oppress the poor and vulnerable in pursuit of our own pleasure. The opposite is the king and the kingdom. That looks like this. It'll be on the screen as well. The kingdom stands in stark contrast to the empire. The kingdom belongs to the poor and they are called blessed. The kingdom produces loving, generous, and merciful people even to our enemies. Kingdom people do not take advantage of the vulnerable. Instead, we love the vulnerable as they love, as we love ourselves. Kingdom people prioritize the interests of others, not their own. They do justice. They love mercy. They walk humbly. They humble themselves rather than exalting themselves. Everything that Jesus demonstrates is the antithesis of empire. And I think the question we have to ask ourselves is, are we coming into the world with an allegiance to empire or an allegiance to our king? Merrick describes it this way. Palm Sunday is a call to reconsider our allegiances. Who claims us? To whom do we listen or submit our judgment? What principles or priorities dominate our lives? In defiance of those who would claim our allegiance, whether celebrities, athletes, scientists, politicians, commentators, or journalists, we determine to yield only to Christ. We refuse to be subjected to any order, any set of priorities or principles, whether economic, political, or social, when it contradicts the agenda of Christ's kingdom. I think this is probably one of the more difficult things in our culture at this very moment, is to live for a king and a kingdom that is coming but not fully present. And so every day we swim in a water that is telling us to be powerful, to be significant, to ask for more, to demand, to overcome, to belittle others, to choose self over others. Constantly we swim in that. And to be reminded on Palm Sunday that that is not who we are allegiant to. 
Our allegiance is to the king and the values of the kingdom. And that is the opposite. That is the one that comes from the east with humility and meekness. Not the one that comes with power and ego and pomp and circumstance. Which leads to the final idea. Is your posture, is my posture, one of power or meekness? See, again, the way of Pilate is the way of power and might and ego. The way of Jesus, as the text tells us, is one where he enters the city weeping. We're told that he, as he's kind of marching, preparing to come in, he weeps over the city for its brokenness, its lostness, for what it lacks in its shalom. And then he proceeds to enter with humility enter with gentleness, to ride on a, a nursing donkey who's got little baby beside because he enters with this meekness. Matthew reminds us, blessed are the meek for they are the ones that inherit the earth. And Jesus is not devoid of power. He has all of it and yet chooses to set it aside for meekness, this controlled strength. So I think the question that Palm Sunday also invites us to ask is this one, that are we living with a posture of power or meekness? Are we living this way in the world, in our city, in our neighborhoods? So maybe asking yourself even today, where is power, that desire for power, for affluence, for authority, where is that creeping up in your life and mine? Is it showing up in your relationships? Do you power up to get your way? Or do you defer? Are humility and vulnerability the things you lead with? Or is it demands and expectations? Are you choosing your needs and your desires over the needs and the desires of the group? Or of the person across from you? What about work? Do you lead with ego? You try to always be perceived as the smartest in the room or the most significant. Do you use power to step over employees, vendors, your boss? Or is your whole goal every day to empower them? Do you work with Humility and honesty and loving and gentle. In your conversations, does it always keep coming back to you? Do you find yourself bragging? Do you feel like when you enter conversations that it's always a contest to figure out who wins, who had the better argument? Or are your conversations a chance to be vulnerable? chance to love the other, chance to invite them to be the center of intention. See, all of us, in whatever area of our lives, have choices to make on how we enter a room, how we enter work, how we enter a relationship, how we are among our friends. And I think we have to ask ourselves, are we coming in with coercion and violence and power and anger and control and self-protection? 
and self-concern, or are we entering in the way of Jesus? And I think Palm Sunday invites us to ask that really hard question. And to be a group of people who enter in the way of Jesus. And in that, exhibit the power of the kingdom. Let's pray. God, we know and are reminded that this Sunday isn't just a Sunday that prepares us for Holy Week. It isn't just a Sunday in which we go through the motions and prepare for Good Friday and Easter. It is truly a Sunday in which a group of people were honoring Jesus by crying out for justice. Who fought against the systems of oppression who were tired of being trampled upon. But even more, a group of people, hopefully, that understood that their allegiance was to you. That faith is not just a set of beliefs or a cognitive idea or a set of words we pray at one moment in time. But that faith is maybe more clearly characterized or described as an allegiance to you. An everyday adjusting of our priorities to live in adherence to who you are, to what you call us to, to what your priorities are. That it's an upside down kingdom where the poor are the ones that are elevated, the meek are the ones that inherit the earth, the forgotten are the ones that are remembered. So God, may we be a part of ushering in that kingdom. May we not be about self-concern and ego and reputation and all the other things that the world is inviting us to hold on to, to find purpose and meaning, but may we find that in you. May we recognize that in the person of Jesus, we have the perfect example of someone who is incredibly strong, incredibly powerful, that controlled everything in the moment and yet chose to set that aside to walk in meekness. God, may we walk in that same meekness this week. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.